The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 53 of The Murder of My Family. Just a quick warning, my voice sounds a little bit choppy because I got sick right before recording. But I powered through, and I hope the sound is okay. I didn't want to miss an episode. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note before we get started. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on the murder of my family. The way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsors' support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. In February 2000, the bodies of Harold Skip Tillman and his wife Joan, Joni Tillman, were found in a shallow grave in a remote area of San Bernardino County, California. The couple had been involved in several lawsuits before their deaths, leading police to question whether any of those lawsuits might be connected to their murders. The investigation went on for years, but almost 20 years later, the case remains unsolved, and the question remains, who killed the Tillmans, and why? Harold Skip Tillman was born on June 27, 1944, and lived his entire life in California. His first marriage produced two daughters, but the marriage didn't last. When the couple's oldest daughter, Tammy, was about four years old, Skip and her mother divorced. Skip stayed in California, while his ex-wife and the girls relocated to Washington State. Tammy and her sister, who was two years younger than her, would spend about two weeks in the summer with Skip in California, where he would visit in Washington. When Tammy was seven years old, her mother remarried, and the family moved to Arizona. The girls continued seeing their father in the summer, but he wasn't very talkative or friendly during their visits, and showed little affection. He mostly kept to himself. It was the beginning of a splintered and cold relationship between father and daughters. When Tammy was eight years old, and her sister six, Skip married a second time to a woman named Linda. That marriage lasted a year before the two divorced. Not long after that, Skip met and married Joni sometime in the early 1980s. Joni was born Joan Catherine Elliott in 1948 and graduated from Burbank's John Burroughs High School in 1965. Tammy and her sister spent one summer with their father before and one summer after he and Joni tied the knot. When Skip's daughters were 10 and 8, Skip stopped seeing them altogether. It seems as if he decided that after he married Joni, his kids were too much trouble. He rarely stayed in touch with them, but he did manage to send Tammy a check for her high school graduation. At some point, Tammy's mother and sister moved to Texas, but Tammy stayed in Arizona and cut all ties with her mom and sister after a major family dispute. Meanwhile, back in California, 
Skip and Joni Tillman lived in Glendale for about 10 years before moving to a quiet, affluent neighborhood in La Canada, Flintridge. The couple rented a house located at 5649 Bramblewood Road. Skip was a certified public accountant and ran a successful accounting business out of their home. Joni was a homemaker. Skip liked to play golf and enjoyed collecting and working on antique cars. Joni enjoyed interior decorating. The couple was enjoying an upscale life together, but it wouldn't last. On February 7, 2000, a man walking his dog along a wash in a remote area of Yucaipa in San Bernardino County came across a dead dog. He could tell by looking at the well-groomed Maltese that he wasn't a feral dog who had been living in the desert. The man called the sheriff's office, who in turn called the number on the collar. The dog's name was Teddy, and he belonged to Skip and Joni Tillman. At around the same time that authorities were trying to find Teddy's owners, Carol and Jane Eller, friends of the Tillmans, grew concerned when they hadn't heard from the couple, and Joni had missed several appointments that were scheduled for February 7th. Carol Eller convinced the real estate agent who assisted the Tillmans in running the home on Bramblewood Road to let them inside to check on Skip and Joni. When Carol entered the home, he saw that the Tillmans were gone and nothing was out of place. The house looked undisturbed, but there were 15 messages on the answering machine. One message belonged to the sheriff's office. They had called about Teddy. On February 9th, Carol returned that call and told the sheriff that Teddy's owners were missing. He also said that if Teddy was dead, that something terrible had happened to Skip and Joni. That same day, deputies went to the scene where Teddy was found and began a search. Soon after, they found blood in the roadway, and not long after that, discovered the bodies of Skip and Joni Tillman in a shallow grave near Oakland Road and 5th Street, New Kaipa. Someone had pre-dug a 3-4 to four foot grave. It was later determined that Skip and Joni had been strangled to death, and their dog Teddy died from exposure. In the shallow grave, Investigators found a sheet matching Skip and Joni's bedsheet from their home. They also found green paper towels and a green hand towel that also belonged to the Tillmans. Neighbors of the Tillmans were shocked over the murders. They described the couple as model neighbors who were quiet and polite people. Police searched the Tillmans' home and interviewed the couple's friends and neighbors. They established that Skip and Joni were last seen on the night of February 6, 2000 when they had dinner with friends at J.J. Steakhouse in Pasadena. The Tillmans returned home after 9 p.m., although a neighbor said he saw their vehicle pull into the driveway at around 10. It appeared as if the couple had been attacked after they arrived home. The Tillmans' new silver Dodge Durango was missing, as was Skip's wallet, Joni's purse, and their cell phones. The motive for the murders didn't seem to be robbery, because all of Skip and Joni's jewelry including Joni's wedding ring, were still in the house. It didn't take long for the police to uncover reasons why someone may have wanted the couple dead, and it related specifically to lawsuits. Detectives discovered that the Tillmans had been involved in several different lawsuits. The first one occurred in April 1998, when they were sued for breach of contract over a Georgia land deal. In 1999, designer David Hayes accused Skip of embezzling $1.7 million from him and forging his name on over 30 checks over a 10-year period while Skip was employed as Hayes' accountant. Hayes' office manager, Jane Drake, also sued Skip over a $100,000 promissory note he made to her. Another lawsuit involved Joni. She was in a bitter fight with her half-brother Craig Elliott over their father Ray Elliott's estate. In March 2000, investigators announced they had cleared Joni's half-brother, Craig, in the murders. They've never revealed how or why he was ruled out, only saying they were confident he wasn't the killer. Because both Skip and Joni were strangled, some believe that more than one person was involved. Skip's daughter, Tammy, previously stated on the forum WebSleuths.com that her father was a large man and stood over six feet tall. There's no way one person could have overpowered him. But it's possible that the killer threatened to harm Joni in order to keep Skip from doing anything stupid or heroic. Tammy was initially looked at as a suspect in her father and stepmother's murders because she had left many of the messages found on the couple's answering machine. 
but at the time of the murders, she was living out of state. In August 2008, the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office had formed the new cold case division. The team worked on about 600 cold cases, and the Tillman case was one of them. A month after launching the new investigation, police announced a person of interest in the case. Detectives said they interviewed a witness who saw a man driving an older Bronco southbound on Oak Glen Road around the time the graves were discovered. The man drove around a road closed sign near 5th Street and continued on towards the area where the bodies were found. The witness described the Bronco as dirty with lots of primer, mostly green in color. The driver was a white male in his late 20s to early 30s, with brown or black hair and wearing a baseball cap. Another man was in the passenger seat, but the witness couldn't give any details about him. A sketch was made from the witness description, but the men and the Bronco were never found, and the case remains unsolved to this day. Despite the cold relationship between Tammy and her father, she still wants to know who murdered him and why. She's hoping that one day she'll find out. Tammy sat down and talked with me about the difficult relationship she had with her father and how they never got a chance to patch things up before his brutal murder. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey everyone, I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Best Fiends. Most of you know that true crime is my passion, but even someone like me needs a break from it every once in a while. So when I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a fun game that has a great puzzle-solving aspect to it and an ongoing story that unfolds as you play. What I really like about Best Fiends is that the game really stimulates your brain and can be played casually. It's got a great-looking design and bright, bold colors. I'm on level 30, and I try to play every day. I'm trying to catch up to my wife, who's on level 32. You can collect lots of different characters that you strategically use for each level. What's great is that you don't even need internet to play, so it's perfect while traveling. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Hi, Tammy, and thanks for joining me to discuss Skip and Joni's case with us. Hi. Thank you. So if you can, Tammy, tell me a little bit about your your family dynamics growing up and your relationship with your father. Um, okay. Uh, we might, let's see, we lived in California with my mom and dad, and I have one sister um, who's two years younger than me. They were married until... Only until I was four, and my sister was two. Um, my dad stayed in California, and we moved to Washington, where my mom's parents are. And we saw him in the summer of, for usually about two weeks, or he would come there. Um, basically, we stayed there until my mom married my stepdad when I was about seven, and we moved to Arizona. We just continued to see my dad in the summer. He um, wasn't very talkative or very friendly. Um, tried to get him to hug anyone or, you know, say he loved you was kind of difficult. Um, so he kind of kept to himself. Uh, my mom had to kind of push for us to go see him. Um, and we saw him in the summer. Let's see, he was married to a lady named Linda when I was about eight, and that lasted about a year. Um and then by the next summer when we came back, she was gone again. Um, and so, again, it was just kind of two weeks in the summer. He'd send a birthday card, uh, maybe a Christmas card. Um, and then he met Joni. When we were, I was nine and my sister was seven. And we spent one summer there with him before they got married. And then the summer after they were married... And when I was 10, he just decided um, we were kind of too much trouble and wanted to cease seeing us. Uh, my mom tried to push for us to go in the summer still, and we always were very interested in him um, just because he was so kind of aloof. Um, but after that, we barely talked. Um, we'd try to call on the phone, and he wouldn't have much to say. 
Um, so that was just it. Uh, my mom and my stepdad were only married for two years. And so the rest of our lives we spent with just me, my sister, and my mom in Arizona. And occasionally talked to my dad, but um, never heard much out of him except he sent a check for my high school graduation. Um, and that was it. <laughs> so your father, once he sort of separated from your, from uh, your mom, he wasn't in your life all that much and you really didn't see or hear from him. And, you know, that really last time you corresponded with him was in, uh, when you were in high school graduating. Um, yeah, well, it was kind of well after high school. I think I was, well, it was trying to shake my memory here. It would have been like 1989 or 88 when he came here. Um, my sister had caused a big giant mess in my universe and um, I needed help getting an apartment and kind of getting my life back together and they intercepted him, but he had come here to give me a check to help me move into this apartment and I had no idea at all what his, like, I just assumed he was still Mr. CPA living in a one or two bedroom house, you know, um, and didn't ever, I never asked my parents to help me with anything, so I didn't know that he could have potentially bought me a house as opposed to not even helping me move into an apartment. So I knew kind of about his life, but just a little bit from mostly from my aunt and from his mom, um, but had no idea what was going on at all. But you, you came to find out that he was doing very well in his uh, accounting business. I, I came to find out when he was dead. <laughs> it wasn't until after that. Yeah. Now, in, in two, 2000, he's married to Joni Tillman, which was his third wife. Is that correct? It was his, yeah, third wife. And you didn't know her that well. You you weren't very close with her or anything like that, I take it. Um, no, not, not really at all. Um, the summer that we went there, before they were married, um, he always tried to, he tried to keep us really busy, and he was kind of free during the day, and he would take us two different clients. And then, um, when she was there and they, well, we met some of the people when he just met her, once they were married that summer, she took us during the day a lot and she took us to meet a lot of people. And so, um, I think at the time I know them all better now, so it's kind of hard to remember, but it was like wanting to know all of them. So I was very interested in all these people and they were, um, my mom was like, I guess you would say like blue collar, kind of um, middle-class living, and these people were of a higher class. <laughs> I can't really explain it. It seems weird now, but I just wanted to know more about them, and they were more interesting to me because every, the way they lived, and um, just always trying to kind of be on point and want them to like me. So we didn't know a lot about them, but they were just interesting, and we wanted to know them more. And... Um, it does seem weird because there was such a large gap of time when we didn't talk to them or any of them. But once they came, um, once they were helping with his estate and stuff, they were just kind of really quickly familiar to me. And I think what had happened was I have a whole nightmare in my life with, with the stepdad. And um, when that was all reported to my dad, all these people became very interested in me, but I wasn't aware of it. Um I'm sorry. Take your time. So once they got past, um, kind of what my, it, it's a whole, there's a whole middle story that's really big, but once they got past, um, figuring out what had gone on between my sister and I, basically she had used my identity and they, and actually, I guess had told my dad's, side of the family that I had made it all up. So they were all very guarded because my dad had been murdered. And then there's me and they weren't sure kind of where I stood. But once they looked all into it and figured out that I wasn't the one who had done all that. Um, so they were kind of closer to me because they had started to care because of what happened with my stepdad. And they were trying to get my dad to, to do something about it or help me. Um, and he wouldn't. 
And so <laughs> there's that whole middle story to that. Um, so I know a lot about him from his mom and his sister. My mom stayed in touch with them, and she tried to keep him familiar to us, and he was just very closed. I guess what he had done was told... Um, told my stepmom that my mom had divorced him and taken a lot of money from him and basically that he was had to pay her all this money in child support. Well, it was all a lie. And then I guess he just didn't want to be in our lives because it wasn't true. He had given my mom like $200 a month child support for both of us for our, the whole 18 years. So that all got figured out when he came here to help me. My mom was able to confront him about that. Um, so there's just this whole kind of mess and it all transpired from me turning in my stepdad and then him coming here to help and my mom and my sister trying to intercept him. Everyone's kind of stuff came out in the wash. Um, but he ended up leaving without helping me and my mom and my sister moved to Texas and yeah, and then we found out, well, when they moved to Texas, I, I had cut off all of my family because of all the mess. Um, and actually found out from my best friend that my dad had died. Oh, it was kind of hard. Um, there's a, a whole other middle story about um, when he died, they had actually thought I was a suspect because I had been leaving him messages. Um, I have a, a weird sixth sense in the first place, but I had been leaving messages asking him to help me um, kind of get my sister's record out of my name. And uh, the day he died, I was leaving frantic messages, and the police heard those before they ever talked to me. So it took a long time for them to tell, even try to get in touch with me. So um, sorry if I ramble on, kind of, but there's this whole big middle story of a mess just from what he was doing in his life, what I had turned in my stepdad for, and then my sister using my identity for um, felony charges was all kind of it came to a head at once. So it was like a big storm of stuff going on all at one time. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in February of 2000, when, when your father was killed, how old were you and, and where were you living at the time? Um, I was 20, I want to say 27. Um, I was in Arizona and I lived alone um, and had just, I, I had worked at the pro for Maricopa County adult probation and I had to leave there when I turned in my stepdad and my sister used my identity. So I couldn't get a job then, but I was like bartending or waitressing, whatever I could do. Um, at, at some point you mentioned that the police suspected you a little bit, um, because of those messages you had left. Um, uh, what, uh, what did they say? When did they finally reach out to you and say, Hey, um, We'd like to talk to you, or how did they do it? Um, I'm trying to remember at the time. Um, at the time, I was literally at working at a temp Kelly Temporary Services, and I was working for a pool company doing customer service. And um, I think we even only had pagers at the time or something. And I didn't find out until... I think I would probably have it written down somewhere, but it took them like three or four months for me to even know that he was dead. And that information came from someone telling my best friend, my sister told someone who told my best friend who called me and all I got was this cryptic message. And all I heard was that my dad was dead. And it took me another few days to even find out that my stepmom was dead as well. It took even longer for police to get a hold of me. Um, but they would just, so basically the first person I talked to was, um, was the person who handled his estate. And that was, um, just his friends, Carol and Janie Eller. Um, they talked to me a little bit and then police just gave me vague details, but didn't it like, I'd leave a message for um, them at the police department and they would just call me back with little information. Um, it took me another two months and then boyfriend drove out to California with me to the police, um, to the San Bernardino police department, um, just to talk to them in person. Um, so it took about six months to find out the whole process, um, that their close friends had contacted me. We went out there and then 
the person who was originally handling his estate that's, um, I don't know what her situation is as a suspect, but she had contacted me and she just basically said, you're not coming here. You're not coming to their house. You're not welcome to the gravesite. You're not, I mean, she was awful. So, um, and then by that time the police detective would change again. So it took a while, um, to come out. I think I had started looking into it more like online and things. Cause I didn't have anyone like I wasn't talking to my mom. I wasn't talking to my sister. Couldn't trust anything they would say or do. Um, just because how they had left me here. Um, and I found the most information I got from anyone was looking online. I found a psychic who had done like a psychic challenge on TV. And there were three of them. And I picked one and I just, I thought she was like just an everyday person who had done this challenge. And I didn't know that she was sort of infamous and had done um, a lot of, uh, looking into larger crimes like serial killers. Anyway, she called me back and she had let me know what she knew from just seeing the vehicle, seeing the police, things like that. So it took her talking to me and then a long wait before anyone would talk to me at all. But like I said, I wasn't talking to my mom or my sister and they didn't know too much more than I did. So so it, you eventually were cleared by police. They didn't think you had anything to do with it, I assume. Yeah, they figured out that I could barely, you know, get even out of my driveway, much less murder someone. Um, and they just, it, it wasn't even like a formal charge. They were just kind of watching me, talking to people, um, and realizing that, like I said, I didn't have the means to even get out of Arizona, much less anything else. Gotcha. Um so it, a lot of this, you, you find out all this information secondhand, you're on your own. Um, but despite not really having uh, a close relationship with, with your father or your stepmother, um, you decide to start looking into this case or digging into it a little bit. Is that correct? Yeah. That was mostly for his mom. Um, she was never had, she was never well to do. She was in a, nursing home by then and I had kind of um, just promised her I would do what I could you know to look into it or find out before she passed away and I wasn't able to do that so did you become close with her or were you close with her you know as a child I had always been close with his mom um, and my aunt and that was kind of a little bit of a wedge that was between my sister and I um just because she had an opportunity to know me better before um, before we didn't work in Washington any longer, um, know me better than my sister or whatever. But, yeah, we had always called and sent cards, and um, we didn't get to go there to see her much, but we were always close, yes. So when you went there after the... Um after your father's murdered, you go there, the, the people handling the estate tell you that you're not welcome... Um, you sort of run into this brick wall there, but did you find any people that sort of took your side and, and teamed up with you along the way? Yeah, that was definitely, um, Carol and Janie Eller and Carol is the, that's a male Carol. Um, he's the one who ended up taking over the estate when, um, we'll just call her that woman for now. (laughs) When that woman was handling it, she, basically threatened to just hand it all over to the state. And there was another lady, Susie, who was actually written to be the next executor. And her and I were kind of standoffish at first because I was kind of jealous because her family was kind of like my replacement. My dad used to help her and her husband and their kids and treated them like family. So it took me a while to get closer to her. But Carol and Janie, um, Janie was always just, a really nice person and she reached out to me right away um, and kind of filtered because I was a little hard to deal with during the handling of the estate because I didn't know who to believe about anything. Um, So yeah, it was basically that Jamie Eller, her and I were, have gotten a lot closer. Um, Yes. (laughs) What, what kind of things did you work on together and sort of, as far as this case goes and, and sort of uncover or find out together? Um, not a, not a whole lot, just, 
Um, they actually came here not too long ago. Um, they actually came to Phoenix and just went to went out to eat with me, had a long conversation, and they basically told me just what they knew of that day, um, exactly what transpired and things like that. And um, and then had talked about um, like. Jane's the one who told me, she said, when your dad found out what happened to you, she said, she's the one who told me that he, that he wanted to do something, but it would just, he would just get himself into more trouble so he couldn't. And she said they always tried to get him to call me or, you know, to do anything to show that, so I knew he cared and he just wouldn't. Um, so they always felt kind of bad about that. Like she still gets upset. She's like, I'm so, you know, so sorry. Your life was so... So this way, and I'm like, I didn't know any different, so it didn't bother me. But, um, yeah, she's the closest one. And now Susie and I have come closer and just they've sent me pictures and things from my dad. And they, they'll tell stories about them or kind of keep them alive. Um, and we kind of go at the police together, um, just calling and making sure that someone's still looking at the case or seeing what they're doing with it. Um and that's about it. I mean, we have each other on Facebook and we email and things. Um, and that's kind of where we're at now. They'll just, like I said, send me pictures when they come across them. Um, and then Carol made sure that my sister and I got included in the distribution of the estate, which we had no idea. Um, I never, I, I was kind of raised like to take care of myself, not ask any questions or ask for help. And literally my parents didn't. So when we found out there was um, a life insurance policy, we were all kind of in shock. Um, I didn't think my dad would have actually left anything for either one of us or his mom and sister, and we were all included in it. Um, so we were grateful to have Carol handling that instead of the lady who was handling it. Um, I <laughs> get a little nervous talking about her because she's in a position of um, in a position of power basically her and her ex-husband um are both in the legal field in california so i'm careful before i say anything about her at all but um yeah that's all <laughs> so so you came to find out that your, your father had um known about whatever happened to you and was hurt by it but he for whatever reason he never opened up to you about that yeah, they said he felt bad, um, but he didn't know what to do. Um, and I don't know what any parent, you know, even my mom, I was more understanding. Like, I knew I was way more understanding than she, of course, was going to be. Um, because I was 21 before I before I told anyone anything. Um, so, yeah, I was, I didn't care. It, it just would have been nice to to have him, you know, step up and say anything. Um, I kind of, my theory on it was maybe if he had, had done something like helped me out, you know, maybe what happened to him wouldn't have happened. Um, like if he had done anything with unselfish with the money, you know, um, it's, I also know, am aware of and have met the clothing designer that was, that they think was involved with all of this. And, um, that's kind of why I want to get back to California is to just talk to him in person, which sounds scary to some people, but I'm not afraid. <laughs> so, well, uh, and, and you bring up a good point. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. A, a couple of the theories out there are that your parents murders are related to some lawsuits or not your parents, your, your father and your, your yeah. stepmom, I should say. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the, their murders are related to, um, some lawsuits that were going on. One of them was with um, uh, over over, as you mentioned, uh, a designer was suing them. Can you can you talk a little bit about that and why he was suing them? Um, all I know is um, that my dad had been doing his um, accounting for years. Like you said, we had gone there a couple times. We had met the man um, when my dad would take us around during the day, you know, with him to meet, uh, when he had clients to meet or taxes to pick up or drop off. Um, and so we had been to the, his home and his business. And, um, I guess, well, they tell me what had happened was with him, my dad kind of had carte blanche access to money. 
and that's how my dad put it. Um, I know he paid him regularly for things, but he said, I guess he had alluded to the fact that he was kind of allowed to use funds or if he needed funds that, um, that that was fine. And then he said, and then all of a sudden the agreement was no longer fine. Um, I think, I believe just from what I've heard that my dad did go too far. Um, his secretary, the clothing designer secretary, my dad had also, um, gotten money from, and I think it was during that time when they had like those Florida land deals that ended up being people, um, people investing money and then the land, I think, like, ended up being swamp land that was no good. Um, I just remember there being a big land scam back then, and I think it had to do with that. Um, so those people, I don't know if Carol Eller would have more information. I'm kind of careful what I ask, and then um, he tries to kind of, he tries to stay to the legal side of everything as well, but basically it was that account or that clothing designer, his secretary, and they had exact, um, exact amounts of money that they had put in believing it was buying of this land and then turning it into, um, some sort of, you know, lucrative deal, like renting out the houses or whatever went on there. Um, and my dad just didn't have the money then to give back to them, I guess. Um, so my dad was always kind of as they were him and my mother were both CPAs. My mom always was very careful to be like very honest to a point where it was sometimes annoying, but it kept me to where I can't even lie now. And my dad was more on the side of, you know, he would pay his child support, but he wouldn't pay taxes and just kind of like told my mom, if you, if you take me to court, I'll just tell them I have no income, kind of a little more on the shady side of the tax deal. So it didn't surprise me when this all came to pass, except for the amounts of money that, that they were talking about. Um, yeah. <laughs> so this, this money, this missing money or this money that this man thought that he, this clothing designer thought that he was owed, um, was a motive, uh, obviously, possibly to, to commit these murders. Yes. How closely have the police looked at this person? Do you know? I don't. I tried to even find out. I, I was basically just asking questions like literally, has he been, um, questioned, you know, have they brought him in for questioning or how are they looking at it? And they don't, they just don't give a lot of that information. Um, my dad had a lawyer at the time too, that was a suspect. And I know he was questioned, um, but I don't know that, 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 um, David Hayes had ever been interviewed. That's kind of why I just wanted to go there. Like trying to reach people on the phone was difficult. I think when I was in California, I tried to reach that David Hayes by phone, but I was like, um, limited funds. We'd like borrowed gas money to get to California when I went out there and, um, was just a little nervous then. But now that 20 years has passed, I'm a lot older and a lot less scared, um, so yeah, now I would pick up the phone and just go there, but I I want I would have to ask him himself kind of what went on if he was interviewed or anything like that. I I don't think that he was questioned personally. So now you're not afraid to dig into into it a little bit more and and search for answers. Right. Yeah, and I have a little more resources now and um then there's a whole other sixth sense I have about things that we could throw in to make this even more interesting. But, um, yeah, I'm not, and I have a sense kind of when I meet people, it, this has come to pass recently, like with my mom's death, we've like figured out that if I talk to people in person, they have a hard time lying to me. It's weird. It's a, it's so obvious that, I don't know, like I said, it's a thing. <laughs> so I kind of just wanted to go there and look the man in the eye and see what I could sense about him. And I know he'll, I know he would remember me. Um, we would go there and he would let us pick out clothes from the racks and stuff. And I'm sure, you know, I just want to see his face and see, I don't think he personally, even if he had anything to do with it, he didn't personally do it. Um, but yeah, there's a whole other, like I said, with that other lady that was handling his estate and her husband, there's a whole other side to like kind of where the money was going. And I know they, I know they 
they may have considered her a suspect, but as well, I don't know if they've like brought her in for questioning as a suspect and they may not have because she works for, um, law enforcement in California. Like I said, um, there was one other lawsuit going on at the time too. Your stepmother's brother named Craig Elliott was battling her over some family estate property. Um, do you know anything about that particular lawsuit? Um, I knew, I knew she had a brother. I knew they barely talked and I had, we had actually met her dad and stepmom when we were there a couple of times. And, um, so the two of them were always estranged and it didn't surprise me. Like it seemed from what I knew of it, her dad leaving her that money and leaving him out seemed perfectly logical. And so I kind of felt bad for her that that had been going on, um, that she even had to deal with that fight because they weren't close. Um, and she already had enough issues to deal with her stepmom as it was. Um, that's about all I knew about it. We never met him. I think I may have, I'm trying to remember if I talked to him or tried to reach out to him at all. I think maybe I just got information on him from Janie and them. Um, but I had kind of worried that when kind of worried that he would start to come after my dad's estate when all this went on just because of that. But he never did. Well, you know, obviously it's, it's a, a really messy case, a really messy situation. There's a lot of, a lot of, uh, puzzle pieces. Um, but it, it seems like whoever did this, obviously were ruthless and cold and, um, murdered them and left them out in, in a shallow grave. Um, right. what's your, your, have you come to any conclusions or any theories in the case yourself about what happened or why? Um, just from listening, from looking into it myself, um, from help with, I think the web sleuth site has been helping me. Um, they, that's a site that kind of puts people together with people who have ideas and just try to kind of help work through things between that, what the police have told me and what their friends have told me. Um, I'll, the conclusion I would come to, I think someone did hire someone and I just got the impression that whoever those people were came into this country to do it and then left the country. Um, the information has kind of changed a little in my mind. Like they had assumed that that my dad was had intended to leave the country and didn't. Um, and then they had assumed that my dad was trying to make it look, or the, the killers were going to try to make it look like my dad had left the country um, to kind of throw them off. But I have a different feeling on that. I have, it almost seems like um, to me that they left their truck with their ID and everything in a, in a particular place. Um, to throw them off completely. Like, I don't think they took my dad in that truck. I, I think they took him in a different vehicle. But I think the people that that had anything to do with it, I, I got the impression they were they came to this country to do it and then left. Um, that's just personal opinion. They could live anywhere or be anywhere. Um, but I know it was more than one person. And, and I just, even the times when I've kind of given up hope of, like, tr- most people would just be defending their father and I, the position I'm in, I just have to treat him like any other human. And I go, I keep looking because what, what was done to them and how it was done. I don't want my children walking around in a world with people who would do that to someone. Um, so like I said, even when my dad kind of failed me, I just still keep after it because Jody dying too just seemed unfair, even though her and I did, you know, there was no love lost there. I'm just kind of a middle of the road person who looks at things now just from point A to point B. And anyone who could do this to somebody, I don't want, like you said, I don't want them walking around with free to do it to someone else. Yeah. And, and whatever shortcomings <sighs> there were, you know, your father being human, even if he was involved in something shady, he certainly didn't deserve what happened to him. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you boil down to it, and it's kind of the whole money thing, it's like there's a deeper, someday I'll write a book <laughs> story to just 
how um, not even being around him, but kind of felt like I've been under a money curse cloud my whole life. So when I found out what he had done, I was like, well, that makes a lot of sense if there's any truth to, you know, um, basically <laughs> curse of your parents or whatever gets handed down. Um, so anyway, I kind of, I've always wanted to, you know, have him care about me, be enough to be um, his daughter, have him pay attention to me. And my life's gotten a little better just because I know I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I didn't even think of the fact that maybe I was doing all that to someone who, who didn't deserve it. Um, and I, and his wife, she did get it. Her friends, she had a chance to tell her friends that why she hadn't wanted to be around us. Um, because my mom, my dad had lied to her. And so I was kind of upset with him for that because we missed out on their lives um, but yeah, it's kind of, you know, he's my dad and no one deserves to die like that or to, to me to have to watch your own wife die, um, is not something you do to someone for stealing money. It's money. Um, and whoever, obviously it was stolen from had more <laughs> if they could afford to pay a hit on someone. Um, so yeah, I, w I would like to see whoever did it answer for it. it even just to say, you know, how the hell they did that to someone, because I heard it was pretty awful. Um, yeah, and I have kids who don't, you know, they don't have grandparents now because of this, and I'd like to be able to tell them that it was figured out and those people aren't wandering around with them in this world. Yeah, so you, you, somebody that's capable of doing that kind of uh, <laughs> stuff, you're definitely capable of doing it more than once. Right. Most definitely. <laughs> well, uh, in the end, um, what's been the hardest part of this entire ordeal for you personally? Um, is it the combination that you didn't, there's unanswered questions or unanswered things between you and your father that you never got a chance to say? Um, that was, at first, that was the hardest thing. Um probably everyone in my life that I've ever tried to, you know, clear things up with or whatever. It's, you know, that if, when they ask that question, if you'd given anything you could for an hour with somebody, it would have been my dad just to kind of clear the air and uh, have him tell me all the things if his friends have had to tell me. Um, and then just, yeah. <laughs> and then not having my kids have no grandparents and I, I never would have, would have done a lot of things different if I had known all of this, you know? So, uh, I was kind of shocked to know that his, that Joni was dead. Um, I just thought, why, why was that necessary? I assumed she would have still been alive. And I think that the life insurance policy that he left was his thought that something might happen to him and he was leaving it for her. Because I don't think he intentionally left it for us. <laughs> I think it was a plan for her, which at least he finally cared about someone in his life enough. Oh, yeah, it's just, it's sad. <laughs> I felt bad and embarrassed to be his daughter for a while and got past that. Um, and then worried about his friends, who still have no idea. Um, you know, their friends went out to dinner with them one night, and then they're just gone. And that's what I told them today. I said, you guys are truly the family that's kind of victimized. I wasn't close enough to him, thank God, um, in a way. So, yeah. And my, even my mom went through the thoughts of, you know, how things would be different if he hadn't left her. And um, it's just sad that, it's sad that he had to do that to people to get where he wanted to be in life. <sighs> and it, it sounds like all these years later, it's still very heavy on you. It's very, uh, very, it feels like it's recent almost to you. Yeah. And the fact that it just trying to get there, like we were trying to get to California to look into some things. And, um, my, you know, like I said, my husband was my boyfriend at the time and we had no kids. Um, and then when we started to head that direction, I almost lost him to heart failure. Um, and so it's just been so long. And, um, yeah, I just want I just want it handled, and and whoever did it may even not be alive anymore. 
that's another thing because his lawyer has passed away and a few other people involved have also passed away. So um, every year that it goes on, there's it's another year that more answers are just out of touch. I, I think the one thing that's clear is that somebody had to have benefited from what happened. Um, and if you look at the list of who benefits from them being killed, um, or, you know, it's, it's, it's a case of somebody that's just so angry over something that happened that they took this route to, to get even with your dad. Um, and, and perhaps your, your stepmom was collateral damage. Um, but anybody that's capable of that, um, you definitely don't want them running around and, um, being out there. And that's where the, there is a bit of a change. Like at first, um, it, it may have been, um, like I said, that clothing designer would seem like the most obvious. Um, but my thought was then, was it worth it? Because if you, if he had something to do with it and my dad was gone, then that money was not coming back and money would have been spent to take his life. Now, as time goes on, um, there's another person who I'm understanding benefited quite well from it. Um, but there's no proof because she was in their house for two weeks after they were dead and had time to remove all of that proof. And, um, and that's the one where I'm kind of leaning towards looking at now. Um, and that's the only place where I fear for my safety. Um, but I'm not that afraid. <laughs> I mean, you still have to get to me and it's not like I'm rich and out there in the world running around and easy to get at. <laughs> um, so there's still that end of it. And that's where I'm leaning more towards now, just trying to figure out how that person benefited and I don't know. Like I said, it's got me to be a very fair type person. From what I understood, money was being laundered through a person and properties were being purchased, but I never, I still don't know what my dad got out of it. If that were the case, because his name's not on any property. Um, and if there were some type of agreement, <laughs> then I would just leave it alone. If that makes sense. Like if it was a mutual Whatever was going on, so be it, unless that person's the one that had something to do with it. So I'm kind of weird like that where I try to balance it, but I always try to look at things the fair and right way and go, because I'm embarrassed and hurt that he hurt people. And, you know, like the secretary, she didn't have the money to be lending him. And he just, I know the frustration when someone owes you money and they won't give it to you, how frustrating it can be. Um, so yeah, I have all, all of this going on over here, but you'll never catch me, you know, pinning it on someone who didn't do it or just wanting someone to pay for it. I just want to know who did it and why, and then have them punished accordingly. Cause whoever actually did it. Yeah. They need to, they need to be taken off the streets because it's, I'm told that they incapacitated him to the point where he could see and hear but he couldn't move or talk. And I can't imagine. I can't imagine I wouldn't wish that on anyone. And I, you know, I put myself in his shoes and I thought, well, and there was just, you know, he couldn't say or do anything. And I can't imagine because he loved Jody so much. And she was such a sweet person. Uh, one thing you, you you just mentioned, and, and you know, we look at who benefits, and, and some people had reasons that were owed money or felt they were owed money, but then you wonder, was this done to silence your father from sharing information, and maybe they were worried that that Joni also knew this information because maybe he had told her, so they needed to silence both of them. So it makes you wonder if somebody that your father was involved with maybe did this to keep him quiet, keep them quiet. Have you right. looked into that angle at all? Um, and that's the thing where the police, the you know, I'll call them. I, over the years, stayed up with which detective was on and what they were doing. And you can't really ask them a lot of questions because everyone on that, on my dad's like side is, you know, they watch all of them, I guess. Um, 
police, I don't know if they're, it doesn't kind of seem like they're looking into any of it. Um, but that was, that's where I'm at leaving me with, as, as I said, we'll call her this woman. Um, that would make more sense for her end of it. Um, thinking that. So yeah, that's kind of what I'm looking at now is just find out how they were involved and, and what she would have had, you know, what he could have done to her or why. Um, I don't, she just seems like an opportunist period. Um, but it is hard to ask questions like speaking to Carol and Janie, they seem to know more about like my dad's business doings. Um, just trying to find out information and it's all kind of, um, like they were having to figure it out in hindsight and without a lot of evidence, because like I said, a lot, that person had time to remove things from the house for two weeks after they were dead. Um, so yeah, that direction would be basically, I am looking at what she did with that money and how my dad got into that mess anyway. Um, and, and I don't know if you can explain about that situation without naming this person and maybe explain what you understand, how they were living there and why they were living there. Oh, they weren't living that the person was not living with them, just had access to their house it is what was weird. And I'm still trying to kind of get the details on it. I was told that they went to the house once with police and there was no one home. It didn't, they didn't know anything was wrong or whatever else. By the time the person called with the dog caller and them looking for them, when they went back to the house again, because these three or four friends went with the police both times to the house, when they went back again, I'm told that that, that woman was in the house, had the keys to the house, she was in the house, and she may have been staying there. So I don't know how far away she lived from them, actually, but they... They, that's how they explained it, and I am trying to find out more details. But they said, yes, she answered the door when they came to the house to look for my dad. Um, and police didn't, I'm not sure if they made her leave or took the keys or when they locked up the house as a crime scene. Um, so I need more details on that, basically. But she was, they said she stayed in the house, at the house, for like two weeks. That's, that's certainly somebody that could have had access to stuff and... Move, remove stuff and things like that. Yeah, and it, and they all feel like that person is kind of not not being looked at because of her position. Um, so I guess she has an ex husband who's a sheriff in another county, and um, I was watching them trying to remove her um, from her position with the either probation or parole there somewhere. Um, so, but she's. A, she's kind of a political figure. I'm sure if she, if she heard this now, she'd know that I was talking about her. So, um, I just try to leave her name out too, because I don't want to be have anyone, you know, coming after me for slander, or I don't want to kind of put her name out there and have people looking at her because I don't know for sure. Um, and I wouldn't want it done to me. Um, yeah, but absolutely, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And that's why we, we won't name anyone. And, um, you can just discuss why they, they are, interest you and, and leave their name on it. Yeah. So, yeah, I just kind of do what I do and, um, try to help. I just want anyone to understand that I'm a, no matter what's happened to me, I still just consider both sides of every story and want to know what happened. And I am sad that I'd never, you know, my kids never got to meet my dad or my dad never got to say much of anything to me. Um, I think the most I've ever heard is, a lot of them have been around like ever since that psychic challenge. Um, and a few of them have tried to do, have had people come to them and say, you know, Oh, I saw your, saw your father after he, or your friend after he passed and he passed on a message or whatever. Uh, one of them called me and said, we were just supposed to tell you that your dad said he was sorry. And I thought, well, I guess I'll take that as something, you know, it's better than nothing. Um, and yeah, <laughs> And his mom wanted to know what she was devastated as well. She had no idea. Um, we were just all, we never talked about money and, and it just wasn't something you did. Um, and so she had no idea, you know, she was kind of hurt as well that he didn't come to see her or things like that. Um, so he was just a very off person. Um, then him and his sister had just started talking about, 
or being closer, I think about five or ten years before this happened, and she said she had no idea what was going on either till the end. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> and his friends have filled me in a lot about his life and a lot about things. So it's kind of nice, um, me wanting as a child to be, wanting to be accepted by them. Um, so them kind of taking me in now and telling me about his life is kind of that closed it out for me that um, at least I achieved that and uh, now just try to get some answers for them because they're still walking around knowing someone ripped these people out of their lives. I just started um, even having civilized conversations with her as of like two days ago. So that's really new. Um, She was actually in prison when my mom died and, um, So, yeah, we just barely started talking, and there's all of this kind of stuff from my stepdad up through this and then up to my mom and everything my mom was doing and not telling me because she thought I'd be upset, you know, that she was taking care of my sister's kid and all these things. So it's been a lot of information, and luckily I'm not as emotional. Um, But we'll probably start talking to her again, but it's such... It's such a like shaky, <laughs> shaky thing. Yeah. Well, well, hopefully you get some kind of answers and and can find some kind of peace. And um, even though it's too late to to patch things up with your father, maybe finding what happened to him, finding out the truth about that, will give you some kind of uh, peace. Most definitely. You have any kind of Facebook pages or anything like that? I, I know you mentioned that you're a member on Web Sleuth. Uh, do you actively participate in in the discussion about the case? I do. Um, I've done that for a couple of years now, um, and I go back to it every so often. There's um, like the lady who introduced me with you. She stuck with it the entire time, and there's a couple people. One that lives in California who was going to start um, checking on some stuff there. So yeah, um, I hadn't checked on the page for a while. Um, but just got back there the other day, and that's in turn how I how I came in contact with you. Um, they also have a Facebook page, just a Skip and Joni Memorial, and that's kind of their friends. Um, and I do that, and then just always on Facebook. Period. But yeah, we've posted for information on Facebook. Um, thank you, <laughs> thank you for taking the time to do this as well. Um, just kind of hoping. They always say, you know, there's got to be someone out there who knows someone who knows something, and they kind of thought by now that's what would happen is they said usually in these situations someone breaks up with a girlfriend or someone else gets arrested and turns the other person in, and there's just been an amazing lack of of evidence and lack of information from anywhere on this. So it is a little hard consider it as helping me rise above it because every time I do, I kind of let all this out. Um, Somehow I become a little more enlightened and a lot more calm, so I appreciate you taking the time to do it. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Thanks goes out to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend of the podcast and invite them to listen. As we wrap up, I'd like to invite you to listen to a preview of a brand new true crime podcast that I'm really excited for. It's called Mind Over Murder, and it's co-hosted by Bill Thomas, who was the very first guest on The Murder of My Family. So be sure to give it a listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Mind Over Murder, a new true crime podcast coming this January, hosted by Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilley. My name is Bill Thomas. I'm a victim's advocate and sadly the brother of a murder victim. 33 years ago in 1986, my younger sister Kathy Thomas, along with her girlfriend Rebecca Dowski, were the first two victims in the Colonial Parkway murders in Virginia still unsolved more than 30 years later. Ten years ago, after the FBI lost control of 78 highly graphic crime scene photos, I became much more involved in the case. 
I've become the de facto leader of the eight families who lost loved ones in the Colonial Parkway murders. I'm working on a book on the case, and I'm the co-administrator of the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook group, together with Kristen Dilley. My name is Kristen Dilley. I'm a writer, researcher, teacher, and victim's advocate with a lifelong interest in true crime. I grew up listening to stories about the Colonial Parkway murders. So in 2015, I decided to write a book about how families cope with the aftermath of violent crime. I cold-called my co-host, Bill Thomas, and we developed a friendship and a professional partnership that led us to build the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page, and now this podcast. We'll be discussing solved and unsolved cases from across the country, including the Colonial Parkway Murders. We'll also be bringing in top true crime experts, investigators, forensic scientists, journalists, writers, other podcasters, and family members of victims to offer insight into these cases. Tune in to Mind Over Murder this January, wherever you get your podcasts. 